This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. To purchase this book, go to AmericanVision.org. The Problem of Slavery in Christian America, an Ethical Judicial History of American Slavery and Racism, by Dr. Joel McDermott, narrated by Joe Salant, copyright 2017, American Vision Press. Chapter 6, Emancipation. The Civil War may have brought about the formal end of chattel slavery in America, but it did not end racism and the degradation of blacks. In truth, slavery, too, continued in new virtual forms, each of which appeared in succession until Southerners found some that would fly within their new constraints. Attempts at slavery under a different name included apprenticeships, just as northern states had done, black codes replacing slave codes, direct terror with the rise of the Klan, convict leasing programs, and more. Whatever new forms appeared all stemmed from the same root of racism, which, at this point, seem only to manifest with greater intensity than before. Much has been written about the political battles in which these various phenomena manifested. The overly moderate Johnson administration played into the hands of old pro-slavery forces that wished to legislate blacks back into slavery. Radical Republicans in Congress and some in the newly created Freedman's Bureau advanced an opposite agenda. These pushed so hard, so radically, as to provoke a racist populism through the South to the point of overpowering them. Some in the Bureau, however, also supplemented the racism of the pro-slavery forces and aided their cause with federal regulations just as discriminatory as the attempts of the Southerners. Reports of Southern attempts to annul the results of the Civil War by anti-black legislation appeared throughout Northern newspapers and provoked widespread outrage at what by all accounts was the same old slavery under a new legality. The South decried the villainous triumphant of carpetbaggers, scalawags, and freedmen, which together rivaled the anti-black Southern Democrat hegemony. We need not rehearse all the chapters of the political drama here, even though some may point to the radicalness of the Republicans to justify the reaction against them, or even highlight violence and corruption among Union occupiers in an attempt to mitigate similar or worse evils among Native Southerners. Our purpose here is to highlight the continuity of the social and judicial oppression of blacks, an extension of the injustices of slavery built upon the shared foundation of racism. Our admittedly incomplete selections will focus upon that effect, beginning with the often neglected continuities derived from emancipations before the Civil War. The Northern Contribution as we have seen, the North hardly deserves any awards for its acceptance and treatments of blacks throughout the eras covered. The problem would continue, though support for emancipation would grow, 
especially after the war aim shifted to this issue. Yet even with the acceptance of this aim, the targeted recruitment of black soldiers afterwards revealed mixed motives and turned to racial exploitation just as quickly as it would have in the South. In the Midwest, still a stronghold of white supremacy, political leaders immediately saw the potential for black recruits to fill up their state's quota and thus spare whites from a draft, or fighting at all for that matter. Iowa Senator James Grimes was quite open about it, telling the Dubeck Times he would see a Negro shot down in battle rather than the son of a Dubecker. The statement shows how openly one could favor emancipation while remaining just as ardently racist, and the problem would survive well beyond the war. It is probably not terribly inaccurate to say that Jim Crow laws originated in the North, not the South. Though the South developed concurrent legislation for free blacks during the same time, the difference appears in that Southern states generally viewed free blacks as a side effect of slavery, and thus laws for free blacks were not much more than another species of slave code. Northern states, particularly after emancipation laws went into effect, had no choice but to view free blacks as other citizens. Their black codes stood out, therefore, as pure racism, suppressing blacks as blacks, without the excuse of the institution of slavery. As farcical as that may have been anyway, further, the treatment of free blacks after emancipation in the North thus became both an accepted template and a justification for the treatment of free blacks after emancipation in the South. Nor were these phenomena lost on contemporaries. The racism of the North certainly stood out to visitors. Alexis de Tocqueville punctuated a section on slavery in his famous Democracy in America with the observation that prejudice of race appears to be stronger in the states that have abolished slavery. Southerners, too, noted it well. Henry Clay noted in 1849, in some of the free states, the penal legislation against people of color is quite as severe, if not harsher, than in some of the slave states. Abolitionists recognized it. Harriet Beecher Stowe lamented, it is very easy to see that, although slavery has been abolished in the New England states, it has left behind it the most baneful feature of the system, that which makes American worse than Roman slavery, the prejudice of caste and color. In the New England states, the Negro has been treated as belonging to an inferior race of beings, forced to sit by himself in the place of worship his children excluded from the schools, himself excluded from the railroad car and the omnibus, and the peculiarities of his race has made him the subject of bitter contempt and ridicule. The whole societies of the North and South were consumed by the belief that blacks were a degraded race, and with the exception of some radical abolitionists, this racism hindered nearly all attempts at emancipation and certainly of social and political equality after the fact. 
even the most prominent official emancipationist, as we have seen, shared this belief. The Connecticut chapter of the American Colonization Society, for example, would pronounce its view of the permanence of this perspective. Educate him, the black man, and you have added little or nothing to his happiness. You have unfitted him for the society and sympathies of his degraded kindred, and you have not procured for him and cannot procure for him any admission into the society and sympathy of white men. Few at the time seemed to consider how this reality regarding the sympathy of white men had more to do with their own prejudice and social jealousies than the true potential of the blacks they oppressed. Instead, the full energies of white seemed to work to maintain the inequality. White supremacy was a given fact, virtually unquestioned throughout the British Empire and much of the rest of the Western world. It was as strong in the antebellum American North as in the South and the British West Indies. Even in the guise of criticizing unjust prejudice against any taint of African blood, and acknowledging the potential for producing great men among them, one English naval officer's baseline remained that blacks would never attain to the same powers of intellect as the white men. While some would acknowledge modest virtues among black communities, it was almost universally against the backdrop of general black degradation. In light of this, the only development within the black community that would have won their, whites, unqualified approval would have been its disappearance. Manifestations of this appeared in virtually every segment of society, social, legal, political, and, as we shall see later, religious as well. The many extended debates leading up to the Compromise of 1850, for example, included the proposal by David Wilmot, Pennsylvania, to exclude slavery from any territory acquired from Mexico. While the proposal failed to pass, it did not fail to reveal typical northern hypocrisy on race. A strong motivation behind excluding slaves was to exclude blacks altogether. Wilmot himself argued, I plead the cause and the rights of white freedmen. I would preserve to free white labor a fair country, a rich inheritance, where the sons of toil of my own race and my own color can live without the disgrace which association with Negro slavery brings upon free labor. New York's Henry C. Murphy favored preserving the free states for whites only. Any who shall bring the wretched beings to our free states, there to taint the blood of the whites or to destroy their own race by vicious courses. Soon afterwards, debates over the Oregon Territory featured similar strains. A passage from Ohio Representative David K. Carter stands out for its theme. I sympathize with them deeply, but I have no sympathy for them in a common residence with the white race. Of his elaboration, any southerner 
even a Calhoun could be proud. As follows, God has ordained and no human law can contravene the ordinance that the two races shall be separate and distinct. And if the blacks would occupy a position of equality with the white race, it must be not by commingling with the whites, but by a separation from them. They must exist separately. I will vote against any measure that has a tendency to prolong their common residence in this confederacy, the Union, or any portion of it. I am opposed to tolerating a common residence in the free states for another reason. It affords an opportunity the holders of this kind of property to throw off into the free states their worthless, worn-out, and decrepit slaves, making the free states a kind of safety valve by which to rid themselves of the encumbrance of their superfluous black population for the better preservation of that remainder and for the perpetuating of an institution that I regard as damning upon the prosperity of this country. My own state has a law, and every state in the Union ought to have a similar one, which is calculated to separate the races. For the only relief for this country upon this question, if this continent is destined to become the home of a free democracy and the legitimate inheritance of the Anglo-Saxon blood, the only relief is obtained by a total separation of domicile between the two races. It is for this reason, sir, for the reason that I do not wish to see the free territories of the United States become a common almshouse and receptacle for the superannuated and worthless free blacks of the South, that I will vote to relieve the people of Oregon from the curse of a common domicile of the two races, said Ohio Representative David Carter. Similar comments abound from individuals and public bodies alike at the time. Some sounded alarms against increases or praised a decrease in their black populations. A New York historian in 1853 declared a reported decrease of its black population by one half highly gratifying. In 1821, the Massachusetts legislature was alarmed and threatened by a very modest increase in the state's black population despite the fact it was far outpaced by an increase of whites. A committee appointed to examine the matter heightened the rhetoric condemning the black population as indolent, disorderly, and corrupt. Around the same time in Washington, D.C., a grand jury reported that the rapid increase of free people of color was an evil which requires the interference of the legislative authority. The District of Columbia had serious help advocating racial hostility from its star district attorney, Francis Scott Key, whose star-spangled career displays one of the starkest displays of emancipationism fueled by racism available. A founding member of the American Colonization Society, Key revolted after abolitionism began exposing the project as an ineffective sham, partly due to his duplicitous career 
This included an apparent reign of terror by Key's police department against blacks. In an 1833 case, for example, a group of free blacks assembled for a party after carefully applying, paying for, and receiving the required permit. Despite the compliance, after the party had well ensued around 11 p.m., a group of Key's constables surrounded the building with guns, pistols, and clubs, closed in, and proceeded to rob their victims of all their money and watches. Around the same time, a constable attempted to nab a free black woman while crossing a bridge. In her attempt to flee, likely from being sold into slavery, she ended up over the bridge and in the Potomac and drowned. The matter would have likely passed in silence, as many did, had not William Lloyd Garrison's early compatriot, Benjamin Lundy, used their paper to expose it and call for federal action, implicating Key's administration. There is neither mercy nor justice for colored people in this district. Instead of denouncing the police corruptions, Key blasted the abolitionist papers who dared criticize them. Lundy understood the implicit threat and left town along with his paper. Key, nevertheless, continued his tirade for several years. In 1836, he prosecuted the young Dr. Reuben Crandell for possessing copies of The Liberator and the anti-slavery reporter in his luggage. While eventually acquitted by a jury, Key kept Crandall in jail for several months up to that point. During the stay, he contracted a fatal case of tuberculosis. The trial drew national attention and Key used the platform to advance his racism. Are you willing, gentlemen, to abandon your country, to permit it to be taken from you and occupied by the abolitionist, according to whose taste it is to associate and amalgamate with the Negro, said Key. While the intensity of racial prejudice against free blacks could vary in particular locations, Many, including some free blacks themselves, agreed that the signs of prejudice were more in evidence in the North. One New York editorial in 1853 noted, Though they have long since ceased to be slaves, they are still wholly distinct and an outcast class. A free black in Rhode Island recalled from his childhood Negro school a white teacher who threatened to flog any black student who greeted him in public. Worse yet, a British man working in New York during the Civil War recalled of his shopmates that the strongly expressed opinion of the majority was that they, blacks, are a soulless race. And I am satisfied that some of these people would shoot a black man with as little regard to moral consequences as they would a wild hog. The Scottish phrenologist George Combe noted in 1839 that even the educated white Christians among Philadelphians would probably shrink back from the gate of heaven if it were opened by a colored man and showed colored people within. The sentiment was nearly universal. Only the warmly philanthropic view them as men and treat them with real regard. Free blacks in the South face a barrage of discriminatory laws despite their freedom. 
In particular locations, they could not own guns or powder, purchase or possess liquor, smoke tobacco in public, play cards or dice, play any game with whites, own more than one dog, walk with a cane or stick unless they were blind or lame. If they did possess any prohibited items, any white person could legally seize them, and violators were also subject to whipping. In Charleston, any black found near any instance of fire was subject to whipping unless they were helping to put it out. Blacks were also routinely subjected to harsher penalties than whites for the same violations. In several southern cities, free blacks as well as slaves might be whipped for violation of ordinances prescribing only fines for white offenders. This held true for border states as well. In Baltimore, after 1839, a free black arrested as a vagrant might be sold for the period of one year. Free blacks in the North, however, faced some of the same restrictions imposed on even black slaves in the South. Ohio refused free blacks the right to serve on juries as well as the right to testify against a white. Worse, the Ohio legislature in 1839 denied black and mulatto residents any constitutional right to present their petitions to the General Assembly for any purpose whatsoever. The Assembly declared that any such petition it did receive would be a condensation of grace on the Assembly's part and expressed or implied no constitutional right of the petitioners. Even when blacks did get their day in court, they faced ridicule as court reporters routinely exaggerated their dialects, mannerisms, and ignorance of legal forms just for fun. Some northern states required blacks to pay fees for the mere privilege of residing within that state. An ordinance passed in the nation's capital in 1821 not only imposed an extraordinarily high bond, $500, for black would-be immigrants, which ensured that virtually none could or would come in, it also required all resident blacks to register with the government annually as well as post a small bond along with a surety from a white person. These yearly permits were only issued once bond was proven posted and blacks who wished to move to a different home in the city were required to wait until the registrar first updated the license so the government could keep track of them. In other cases, restrictions against blacks may not have been encoded, but were certainly enforced through social or police practices. Free states that did legally allow black jurors nevertheless refused to call them. Likewise, while northern states did not enact curfew laws against blacks as in the south, some ordered officers to attend blacks with extra scrutiny after dark, General ridicule extended to the street as well. Blacks throughout northern cities were subject to daily assaults from curses to insults to pushing, shoving, stoning, and even worse acts of random cruelty. Without hyperbole, 
abolitionist James Freeman Clark could summarize the northern hypocrisy of 1859. In most of the free states, they were not allowed to vote, nor admitted into the public schools, are driven from places of public amusement and from public conveyances, and are not permitted by social sentiment to engage in more than 10 or 12 of the 300 and more occupations set down in the census for the white male population. To the list of general exclusions and segregations can be added particular public or professional opportunities, such as New York Academy of Medicine, the World Temperance Convention, the National Exhibition of American Manufactures and Products of Mechanical Arts, the Zoological Institute of New York, and many more. When free blacks in Philadelphia attempted to form a volunteer fire company, a group of 25 white companies opposed them, proclaiming that black firemen could lead to serious injury to the peace and safety of citizens in time of fire. Eventually, over two-thirds of the fire companies in the metropolitan area publicly joined the protest and shut down the attempt. In the end, free blacks could not escape segregation even in death due to the widespread regulation of blacks to segregated cemeteries. Henry Bradshaw Fearon, a British merchant and traveler, observed, There exists a penal law written deeply in the minds of the whole white population, which subjects their colored fellow citizens to unconditional, contumely, and never-ceasing insult. From this penal law, he added, no respectability, however unquestionable, no property, however large, no character, however unblemished, could spare any black, not even one only one-twentieth black. The modern historian Leonard Curry certainly does not exaggerate when he concludes, not one sentient black in antebellum America could escape the knowledge that he lived in a white land under a white government that administered white law for the benefit of a white population. And in the eyes of all these, he was a uh, being inferior to all, but the most base and degraded of the whites, and that no amount of conformity to white mores or customs or acceptance of white values could change that reality. This reality did more than illustrate northern hypocrisy. It served as a ready justification for the immediate post-war changes in southern laws, from slave codes to black codes, and Jim Crow laws well beyond. Professor Leon Litwack summarizes the big picture well. Racial segregation or exclusion thus haunted the northern Negro in his attempt to use public conveyances to attend schools or to sit in theaters, churches, and lecture halls. But even the more subtle forms of 20th century racial discrimination had their antecedents in the antebellum north. Residential restrictions, exclusion from resorts and certain restaurants, confinement to menial employments and restricted cemeteries. The justification for such discrimination in the North 
differed little from that used to defend slavery in the South. Negroes, it was held, constituted a depraved and inferior race which must be kept in its proper place in a white man's society. Between the black codes already in place for the free blacks of the South and the extensive discriminations, both social and legal, against free blacks in the North, the slaves had no chance of freedom from racism, oppression, degradation, discrimination, and even violence once emancipation would come. So, sure, the war happened and the blacks were freed, but the end state would in some cases be worse than the first. These precedents would last well into the 20th century, and they would appear with vengeance almost immediately after the war during Reconstruction. Reconstruction. While the Civil War raged, the U.S. Congress took advantage of the absence of its southern contingent to begin the work of emancipating the slaves. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, monumental as it was, had limited jurisdiction and effects. Congress set out to accomplish something more thorough and lasting. The Senate passed what we now know as the 13th Amendment in April of 1864. The House followed in January. Eighteen states had ratified by the end of February. Lee surrendered at Appomattox on April 9th, and the 13th Amendment became a bargaining chip in the long process of full surrender and readmission to the Union of the Southern States. By December of 1865, enough had ratified to expand the core feature of the Emancipation Proclamation into a full-blown constitutional law. Slavery and indentured servitude were constitutionally banished from all jurisdictions of the United States, except as a punishment for crime. The amendment stands at the beginning of the effort and era known as Reconstruction, which would last until 1877. While the name may suggest a gradual building effort to a completed goal, however, the reality was more like an ill-defined goal that was not only never completed during the era, but created a whole new type of civil war that has lasting repercussions today. The first battle of this extension of the Civil War occurred almost immediately. While the punishment for crime, exception to slavery, was no doubt added to the amendment with no ulterior motive, many in the South read it with a sly smile. They proceeded to enact or enforce a barrage of regulation and vague statutes to make criminals out of former slaves and thereby legally return them to slavery. While this tactic succeeded widely and existed in some forms well into the 20th century, it nevertheless provoked reactions and oppositions that Southerners then felt justified in meeting with less sanctioned measures. Whether through bad faith exploitation of legal loopholes or illegal tactics that opponents could not usually prevent, 
Southerners found ways to unreconstruct the nature, scope, and intent of emancipation and reconstruction. The first such attempt came in the form of a new set of intensely racist legal codes. Black codes. The smoke had hardly cleared from the battlefields when defiant Southerners began devising legal means to return blacks back to the previous levels of subjection. Many towns and cities passed local ordinances as early as the summer of 1865. Whole states followed within months. Among the more notorious instances, the Board of Police of Appaloisis, Louisiana, county seat of the aforementioned St. Landry Parish, openly acknowledged that because the war had disrupted the relations formerly subsisting between master and slave, the town needed a new code to replace it. For the proper police and government of the recently emancipated Negroes, the ordinance then promptly forbade any black from entering the city limits without written permission from his employer. An obvious adaption of the previous laws prohibiting slaves from leaving their plantation. The town would compel offenders to serve two days of community service, five if apprehended after 10 p.m., or pay comparable fines. Blacks could not own or rent houses within the city under any circumstances or reside within the city at all unless in the regular service of some white person or former owner who shall be held responsible for the conduct of said freedmen. Blacks could not hold public meetings or congregations upon pains of imprisonment and five days labor on the public streets. Those interested in church could attend the services of established ministers, but could not remain in town after 3 p.m. on Sundays. Any black caught preaching without special permission from the mayor or board could face 20 days compelled service. Blacks could not carry firearms, nor engage in any sales or trade without special permission from their employer and the board. Mississippi passed the first statewide legislation and some of the harshest under the guise of an act to confer civil rights on freedmen. The state did in fact allow freedmen access to courts and to own property, yet only in incorporated towns where corporate authorities shall control the same. While establishing marriages for blacks and mixed, the new statute simultaneously forbade all interracial marriage upon penalty of life imprisonment. The law required blacks to provide annual written proof of employment to their mayor or police chiefs and to secure such work contracts in duplicate with two white witnesses. Should the laborer be deemed to have broken his labor contract in any way, at any time, he could be required to forfeit his wages for the entire year. Any white person could arrest and return any black alleged to have deserted their contract and receive $5 plus 10 cents per mile from the forfeited wages. In addition to these civil rights, 
the state passed additional controls that virtually extended the master-slave relationship under the new name Master and Apprentice. This new contrivance mandated that local authorities report any children of blacks they deemed orphaned or whose parents they deemed unable to care for them, just like the apprenticeship laws we saw with some of the northern states during their emancipation. Mississippi would assign these minors to a suitable person, in which process the former owner of said minors shall have the preference. Just as before, these apprentices were bound by indenture until age 21 for males and 18 for females. Further, the state expanded its already broad vagrancy laws to include all blacks without lawful employment, any blacks assembling at any time, and whites assembling with blacks on terms of equality, or any whites having sex with blacks. In such cases, the law fined blacks $50 and imprisonment up to 10 days, and fined whites $100 with prison terms up to six months. The expansion also included a poll tax, the proceeds of which would fund indigent blacks and of which the failure to pay constituted vagrancy, punishable by forced labor to pay the tax. None of the references supplied so far have come from anything other than sources who favored and defended such laws, even as late as the 1900s. This perspective not only gives us a window into the continuation of racial judicial sentiments which would last even until today in some cases, certainly into the volatile 1960s, but its candor adds a certain confirmation that goes beyond the authority of even the best peer-reviewed journalism or academia. The authors of these sources approved of that which they wrote. We can receive the perspective of such scholar advocates, therefore, with greater assurance, even if with equally enlarged sadness. William A. Dunning, for example, a Columbia University professor who maintained a pro-Southern Democrat view of Reconstruction, was not only widely respected and defended in his time, but trained an entire generation of historians in his viewpoint. In his influential Reconstruction, Political and Economic, 1865 through 1877, he excused the black codes of the South by saying that the freedmen were not and in the nature of the case could not for generations be on the same social, moral, and intellectual plane with the whites, and this fact was recognized by constituting them a separate class in the civil order. What he saw as vital and necessary, we today see as the extenuation of oppression and injustice, yet his approbation assures us of the reliability of the truly racist and oppressive nature of laws that some may otherwise attempt to whitewash or even deny. We will let him speak for himself at length as he recounts the story of the black codes immediately after the war. As follows, For decades, it has been persistently preached 
that slavery was the source of all of our national ills. Hence, the adoption of the 13th Amendment was felt to be necessary in the inauguration of a grateful and permanent relief from the eternal African in politics. Indignation and anger were therefore widely manifested when the radicals not only asserted, but were able to present plausible proofs of their assertion that the Southern legislatures, even while ratifying the 13th Amendment, were enacting laws which preserved the substance, though avoiding the name of slavery. Legislation to bring some degree of order out of chaos was naturally the earliest task undertaken by the governments organized by the president's guidance. Of this necessary legislation, the chief requirement was that the status and rights of the freedmen should be precisely defined. Dunning goes on to say that the legislation Northerners condemned primarily came from Mississippi's black codes, but he implies that the southern states varied so much this did not fairly represent the more lenient states. The reader can judge how much difference there is and how much it matters from Dunning's preceding comments. The fundamental characteristic of the legislation was that it set off the hitherto servile race as a distinct class, designated generally as persons of color, consisting of all who had in them a specified proportion, generally one-eighth of Negro blood. To this class were assigned the ordinary civil rights to make contracts, to sue and be sued in the regular state courts, to acquire and hold property, and to be secure in person and estate. But at the same time, various restrictions and qualifications were imposed which placed persons of color on a different plane from whites. In some of the states, the inferior class were forbidden to carry weapons, except after obtaining a license. In many, they could be witnesses in court only in cases involving parties of their own race, and particularly where all were subject to special formalities and penalties in connection with contracts for labor. The laws concerning vagrancy also were full of discriminations, and in many cases assured to the white magistrates wide discretion in stamping blacks as vagrants and assigning them to the highest bidder to work out fines. Mississippi, Louisiana, and South Carolina furnished the most notorious features of this legislation. In Mississippi, the freedmen could not own land, nor could they even rent it save in incorporated towns. A local ordinance in Louisiana required every Negro to be in the regular service of some white person or former owner who shall be held responsible for the conduct of said Negro. South Carolina forbade persons of color to engage in any trade or business other than husbandry and farm or domestic service except under a license requiring a substantial annual fee and in code concerning master and servants embodied many rules that strongly suggested those formally enforced as to master and slave. 
To a distrustful northern mind, such legislation could very easily take the form of a systematic attempt to regulate the freedmen to a subjection only less complete than that from which the war had set them free. With the 1866 congressional elections looming, some of the southern states either delayed such measures or sought to ameliorate them for northern political audiences. In North Carolina, a committee of three appointed by the Assembly tiptoed between a largely racist culture and a largely pro-union government and wrote a report filled with surprising moderations. The slave codes in that state, revised as recently as 1855, had specified whipping for a variety of offenses. Slaves could not possess a gun, teach other slaves to read, sell liquor, or preach, and free blacks could not intermarry with slaves, play games of chance, buy or sell with slaves without hazarding the lash. Suddenly, however, in 1866, the state went out of its way to condemn whipping. Public whipping is a species of punishment which ought rarely to be inflicted on anyone whom it is the purpose of the law to reclaim from crime. The culprit, thus punished, becomes utterly degraded in the public esteem, and it would be wonderful if he did not become so in his own. A freeman, thus degraded, loses all incentive to virtue, and so far as his example can extend as apparent or otherwise, he inculcates all his vices in those around him. By this sole paragraph, the committee rightly condemned the unanimous and ubiquitous practice of the whole South and most of the North for roughly the previous 250 years. Whether unwittingly or by way of conscious attempt at reformation, this new sentiment revealed a concern either for blacks or for public relations. Not all states, however, exhibited the same concern. With its black code, Florida could sentence any blacks caught with firearms or weapons to stand in the pillory for one hour or to be whipped, not exceeding 39 stripes or both, at the discretion of the jury. Likewise, any black presuming to intrude himself into a church service or public conveyance segregated for whites only could suffer the same punishment. The state found a convenient ruse of equality here, though by providing the same punishment for any white who would likewise intrude into a segregated black space, the obvious reality being that in an anti-black racist society, such segregation was exactly what whites wanted, while blacks counted it exclusion. Even the more moderate laws of places like North Carolina, however, contain the same type of apprenticeship subterfuge in Mississippi and South Carolina. Southerners use apprenticeship laws in multiple states to bind thousands of black miners in a new version of indentured servitude without consent. Likewise, North Carolina included other common discriminations, 
such as the invalidation of most contracts of sale involving a black unless witnessed and signed by a white, the prohibition of black testimony in court proceedings where a black was not a party to the suit, and the death penalty for the rape of a white woman by a black. Other states added miscegenation laws with stiff penalties. Alabama's 1866 enactment forbid whites from intermarrying with blacks or mixed upon the steep penalty of imprisonment or hard labor for between two to seven years for both partners. Texas and Louisiana both tried to stop black women from becoming permanent housemakers of their own homes by stipulating that all labor contracts with blacks shall embrace the labor of all the members of the family able to work, a feature that forced the women and children alike back into the fields. Slave forces constantly dreamed of new schemes of continuing the old ways, including the continued denigration of blacks in the process. One fad suggested flooding the region with poor immigrants to supply cheap labor. One paper described the attitude as, We have lands, but can no longer control the niggers. Hence, we want northern laborers, Irish laborers, German laborers to come down and take their places and to work our lands for $10 a month. Some considered Chinese laborers docile and easily exploited and thus preferable. The Lexington Observer and Reporter in 1869 hoped an influx of Chinese would put the blacks in their place. The tune will then not be 40 acres and a mule, but it will be work nigger or starve. The newspapers were joined in such talk by the people. One planter's wife wrote that by filling Mississippi with Chinese labor, we can furnish the world with cotton and teach the Negro his proper place. During the reactionary couple of years leading up to 1867, vast police apparatuses appeared to enforce the new system of laws, specifically amongst the Negro population. Some cities or towns, such as Augusta, Atlanta, Nashville, Memphis, and Richmond, established formal police departments for the first time. Just as slave patrols had recruited from among those motivated to oppress blacks, and in some cases the members of these new patrols still wore their Confederate gray uniforms in what had to seem like a continuation of the war's desperate aim to keep blacks enslaved, likewise, the very laws they enforce had been written in many cases by the very statesmen that had led the secessions to begin with. Empowered by both racism and vague statutes, these new police forces seldom targeted whites for the same offenses they regularly ransacked black homes to search and seize alleged contraband, or to intimidate blacks who balked at signing the new labor contracts required by law. Further, while blacks had newly received the right to sue and be sued in court, the continued refusal to allow black testimony in court ensured an unfair trial. 
Even when black testimony would be allowed, the refusal to allow blacks to serve on juries ensured the predictable decisions of highly prejudiced all-white judges and juries. In theory, virtually any white could get away with virtually any crime against any black, and if police actually charged him for it, juries would be likely to let him off. If this sounds itself like a blanket prejudice in hindsight, just one statistical glimpse will reveal the extent of the problem. In the single year of 1865 to 1866, Texas courts indicted around 500 white men for murdering blacks, but not one was convicted. This led one northern visitor to quip, Murder is considered one of their inalienable state rights. Even where explicitly encoded racism did not exist, the vagaries of the statute's complicit silence and inequities built into the institutions and processes allowed racial discrimination to prevail anyway, and certainly by design. Even Tennessee, therefore, which passed no official black codes at this time, nevertheless had them. The same extensions of oppression followed through different means, even if only social, but certainly more than social as well. Tennessee's black code was enforced through interpretation and custom. The reading of the law and not its actual construction were at the center of this system. The light of emancipation but also of a long history of denigrating blacks by a more explicit code. Tennessee's legislators saw no reasoning against a more stringent reading of the law when dealing with a freedman. To unequal reading, we must add unequal enforcement as well. Officially colorblind or non-discriminatory laws could nevertheless allow for all kinds of racial disparities and abuses. Police and courts could work within the standing laws against vagrancy, trespass, or contract to target the newly freed blacks. In addition, the state could pass some new statutes or enhance penalties directed at offenses allegedly committed more often by blacks, horse theft, arson, robbery, and burglary. In one example, the state outlawed hunting on Sundays. Ostensibly a protection of religious piety, the law specially targeted blacks who, by contract, had only Sundays off work. The new law took what precious little time remained to them in which they could otherwise have hunted for food. In some cities where freed blacks, unwelcomed by white residents, built makeshift refugee camps for themselves and their families on the edge of town, Mayors responded by using the police power to condemn and destroy them under the guise of public health. Most cases, however, remained within basic but nevertheless vague law allowing for discriminate reading and enforcement. A charge of drunk and disorderly conduct would normally send a white person to jail for the night with minimal fine. Often, they were not even taken to jail if the town was small but escorted home with admonishment to improve their habits. However, a freedman picked up for any misdemeanor faced time in the city or county workhouse. 
The newer southern newspapers routinely reported instances of blacks being sent to the workhouses over minor offenses, often with descriptive insults. Little nigger with a coconut head. Such routine reports seemed only to highlight a practice even more routine. One eyewitness at just one such trial reported that the court was crowded with niggers. White police could generally have their way with black citizens. Even in the rare cases, blacks enjoyed some power. The famous Memphis riots in 1866 were sparked in part when free blacks who had formerly joined the ranks of the war clashed with Irish immigrants who comprised the local police force. When the free black soldiers patrolled and protected their own community, the white officers received it as an offense and retaliated by arresting and abusing them for petty charges. Eventually, the affronts grew into mutual hostility and ended in a tragedy that left hundreds of mainly blacks dead or injured, robbed, and even raped. Scores of black homes and some churches were burned as well. Against much of this, the Freedman's Bureau was powerless. While helping in some cases, it either lacked manpower and resources to reach every single town, or even the whole of the larger towns, or it lacked the will. In some cases, agents were just as racist as their southern beneficiaries, and often copied their regulatory definitions from southern laws, or mimicked their decisions to court favor with locals. Far from alleviating the root problem of racially discriminatory government in America, the new settlements and legal institutions, even in allegedly more moderate places like Tennessee and Kentucky, actually enlarged the discretionary powers of local judges and juries and grew the real and discretionary powers of police as well. Throughout the South, the goal, whether explicitly legislated or not, was to keep the blacks under as much control possible as they previously were. Immediately after emancipation in Virginia, authorities began to target blacks with vagrancy statutes. Within months, black voices from Richmond appeared in northern editorials about the only place that would hear them, complaining, we are required to get some white person to give us passes to attend our daily occupation, without which we are marched off to the old rebel hospital, now called the Negro Bullpen. Letters lamented that locals treated blacks worse than ever we suffered before. Another mused, all that is needed to restore slavery is the auction block as it used to be. When one includes a consideration of the soon-to-be-introduced convict labor leases, they would have to admit the auction block came back too. Thomas Conway, an agent with the Freedmen's Bureau in Louisiana, testified to Congress on how state and local officials responded to emancipation in that state immediately after the war. He noted how the leading officers defied their promise to submit to the new government and instead immediately began spinning new legislation to perpetuate slavery under a new name. The black codes, he testified, were simply the old black code of the state, with the word slave expunged and negro substituted. 
the most odious features of slavery were preserved in them. Enforcing such statutes ensured a new virtual slavery. In the city of New Orleans last summer, under the orders of the acting mayor of the city, Hugh Kennedy, the police of that city, conducted themselves toward the freedmen in respect to violence and ill usage, in every way equal to the old days of slavery, arresting them on the streets as vagrants without any form of law whatsoever, and simply because they did not have in their pockets certificates of employment from their former owners or other white citizens. The police and local officials work with planters and employers, incarcerating free blacks for the purpose of placing them in bond service for the state or some contractor. Conway concluded, I have gone to the jails and released large numbers of them, men who were industrious and who had regular employment, yet because they had not the certificates of white men in their pockets, they were locked up in jail to be sent out to plantations, locked up too without my knowledge, and done speedily and secretly before I had any information on it. Before we can report with some comfort that the most flagrant of the black codes never went into effect before the federal government overturned them, the powerful reaction of the Southerners during this fateful two years reveals not only the continuing mindset of racial animosity towards blacks, but also the lengths from routine harassment to murder to which many in the South were willing to go to maintain white dominance and to preclude even the possibility of social mixing, let alone familial. For this reason, the black codes deserve much dedicated attention. They reveal to us the spirit underlying what was to come, even when explicit laws may not sanction the terror. The Ku Klux Klan Within months of the end of the war, a group of former Confederate officers organized a social club that would become the famous Ku Klux Klan. Formed at first, allegedly, only for amusement, versions or imitators of the Klan spread all over the South and portions of the North and West as well, with a written agenda of enforcing a white man's government. A reign of terror followed rippling white sheets and always nameless and faceless to evade accountability. The violence, however, was in everyone's face. During the 1868 elections, multiple Republican legislators and convention members were assassinated in Arkansas and South Carolina. Anyone who opposed the agenda, black or white, would meet the nameless terror. In contrast, even the few blacks who joined Democrats remained immune. The terror spread across the South sometimes sanctioned by local and state officials. In 1868 in Georgia, for example, whites had reasserted their dominance and expelled all black members from the state assembly. A black protest march followed from Albany to the small town of Camilla, ending at a Republican rally. On the pretext that these blacks were armed and thus breaking state laws against blacks carrying firearms, a gang of deputized whites ambushed the march in the courthouse square. When the crowd fled, 
The white gunmen, led by the local sheriff, chased them in all directions into the countryside and neighboring swamps, eventually killing around a dozen and wounding as many as forty. For the next two weeks, whites patrolled the countryside, intimidating blacks not to vote in the upcoming election, punctuating their warnings with random beatings. The terrorism achieved its goal. Back in the state's new capital of Atlanta, the establishment continued uninterrupted. The official legislative register for the session, 1871-1872, omitted the biographical sketches of all 23 black former assembly members, the author citing the manifest absurdity of highlighting the lives of men who were but yesterday our slaves. Violent intimidation occurred commonly, especially during election seasons. White gangs roamed New Orleans in 1868, for example, halting and dispersing Republican meetings. In St. Landry Parish, when a Republican newspaper criticized the local court, the judge himself visited the editor at his day job as a teacher in a local black school and proceeded to beat him with a cane in front of a full classroom. White mobs destroyed the newspaper establishment and later chased off the editor altogether. When blacks marched in protest, a white mob resisted them, again on the alarm that Blacks were illegally armed, and a clash of arms naturally ensued. Whites came from all around to join the pursuit of fleeing blacks for the next two weeks, massacring between 200 and 300 upon sight in the countryside and woods. On the next night, 29 blacks were in prison, 12 of whom just happened to be leaders in the black Republican community. The following morning, the jailer and deputy sheriff knowingly allowed a white gang to kidnap all but two of these men from custody and execute them without trial. A couple of weeks later, a local newspaper bragged of the success, including a hundred dead Negroes and perhaps a hundred more wounded and crippled, while it only regretted that the carpetbagger editor had escaped. Whereas emancipation should have brought relief, these sanctions reveal intensified suffering. While whites had always responded to slave insurrections and suppressive violence, and sometimes, as with Nat Turner's rebellion, continued intimidation and lynching for some time afterward, never had before they fired with total abandon in some kind of open season on blacks. Historian Carolyn E. DeLatte notes in A Vital Retrograde, the vengeance visited upon the Negro population was greater as blacks were no longer protected by any consideration of their monetary value. Sometimes the violence extended only to certain property and not to persons, merely to ensure unjust control of the government and economy. In west-central Alabama's Greene County, some planters apparently tried to pretend as if slavery never ended, contracting freedmen to work in the cotton fields, but in 1868 refusing to pay them. 
This was actually worse than slavery, as the blacks now did not even have the meager care formerly provided by slave owners. Destitute, hundreds of them filed suit against landowners to honor their new contracts, unfair as they were. Faced with one of the minority cases the Freedmen's Bureau could monitor, the local white establishment revolted. The sheriff resigned before he could be forced to attach a white man's cotton at the suit of niggers. Rather than let their vaunted law and order run its due process, the courthouse suddenly happened to burn down, along with all 1,800 lawsuits in it. While some Southern sympathizers today, therefore, accept the belief that the original KKK merely protected vulnerable Southerners from exploitive radicals, this does not coincide fully with the available facts. To be sure, while competing agendas may produce contrasting perspectives, even openly racist and pro-Southern historians admit the terroristic nature of the earliest KKK. The aforementioned William A. Dunning was forced to admit that the Klan-based inspired and related activities of the late 1860s and early 1870s were acts of aggression, violence, barbarism, and terrorism, all based upon white supremacy. In his words, the membership of these bands was generally recruited from the less sober and substantial classes of whites, and their activity consisted in proceedings designed to terrify or coerce freedmen into conduct that should manifest respect for the persons and property of the superior race. With the approach of the Negro enfranchisement, however, the white societies were transformed in membership, spirit, and purpose. The deep dread of Negro domination under the auspices of invincible national power impelled thousands of serious and respectable whites to look for some form of mitigation, if not complete salvation, in the methods of secret societies. In the spring of 1867, elaborate organizations were effected by the Ku Klux Klan, or Invisible Empire, at Nashville, and the Knights of the White Camellia at New Orleans, the explicit purpose of these organizations was to preserve the social and political ascendancy of the white race. Reports of the proceedings through which both blacks and whites were visited with the wrath of the secret orders for supporting the radicals excited widespread interest and comment. The chief of the Invisible Empire became alarmed at the spirit and proportions of the association which he headed, and in 1869 sent forth the order to disband it, but though he surrendered the functions, the local societies long continued to employ familiar methods in asserting the supremacy of their race. These familiar methods included merciless physical suasion of blacks and those that supported or empowered them. Later records included congressional hearings of the events either conducted or inspired by such organizations reveal in Dunning's admission not only general terror and coercion but shocking conditions of barbarity in the attitude of low-class whites toward freedmen. 
Dunning seems to have somewhat excused the violence, or at least suggested that it was understandable given that Southerners were subjected to a social and political system in which all the forces that made for civilization were dominated by a mass of barbarous freedmen. He blamed the violence on the fact that all the intelligence and capacity rested in the white race, while the Negroes were disliked and feared almost in exact proportion to their manifestation of intelligence and capacity. That is, due to their implied total lack of intelligence and capacity, the rank-and-file whites hated and feared them totally. What animated the whites was pride in their race, as such and a dread, partly instinctive, partly rational, lest their institutions, traditions, and ideals were to be appropriated and submerged. In contrast, the Negro had no pride of race and no aspiration or ideals to be like the whites. Dunning casually scoffed at these assumedly hapless blacks for craving those more elusive privileges which constitute social equality such as attending the same schools, churches, theaters, and riding the same trains and boats, staying at the same hotels, and daring to expect burial in the same cemeteries. Indeed, the manifestations of such desires seem to have rendered white violence at least understandable for him. Even were it not so for Dunning personally, he observes it as a historical fact that every form and suggestion of social equality was resisted by the whites with the energy of despair. The dread of it justified in their eyes modes of lawlessness which were wholly subversive of civilization. In 1870, Congress moved to assert greater power over the society enforced and inspired by Klan activity. Their effort resulted in three Enforcement Acts, which asserted equal rights for blacks to vote, hold office, and serve on juries. The Acts also imposed fines and jail time for withholding, intimidating, or preventing the exercise of such rights. The third act, in 1871, added further oversight and a provision to use the militia to put down resistance or conspiracies against the federal government, earning the nickname the Ku Klux Klan Act. Suppressed, the Klan seemed to disappear, but the racism and its memory did not. Nor did the 1871 act prevent other groups such as the White League and the Red Shirts, from the similarly inspired terrorism. In fact, Harper's weekly cartoonist Thomas Nast satirized Louisiana's White League with an image of a member shaking hands with an armed Klansman. Between them is a black family cowering beneath a skull and bones, with captions that read, The Union as it was. This is a white man's government and worse than slavery. Not only would many attempts persist to maintain white supremacy, the Klan would rise again by name and even more intense in violent form than before in 1915 when the silent film Birth of a Nation would popularize a glorified version of its role in defending Southern white pride. In the meantime, the same motivation produced many other devices to combat any notion of equality. 
for blacks. Redemption. Union forces responded to the black codes and the Klan with congressional reconstruction acts that imposed military rule on the former rebel states with the three reconstruction amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, as well as the enforcement acts. The southern states responded with increased terrorism and intimidation from the paramilitary groups, particularly with the long game of retaking control of their own governments in view. The goal of this effort they called the redemption of their states, and it would include the formal reign of white supremacy. In 1876, they had succeeded to the point that they had returned all but three southern states to Democrat control, and this was enough to render the presidential election a scrambled mess with an unclear outcome. To settle what would have been an internal dispute over contested electoral votes, the party struck a deal that would give the presidency to the Republican Hayes in exchange for a formal end of the military rule of Reconstruction and the removal of federal troops from the South. This deal marked the end of Reconstruction and a victory for the so-called Redeemers, who would now have a new beginning in remolding the redeemed South back to their desired mold. The spirit of this redemption already experienced its Pentecost the previous fall when the city of Richmond dedicated the first statue of a Confederate veteran, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, complete with religious fervor, devout clergy such as Robert L. Dabney and Moses Hodge presiding, and a full 50,000 pilgrims attending. It was the first of countless monuments erected all across the South over the following decades, along with annual meetings of Confederate veterans groups, many in Richmond since called the Soldier's Mecca. This heavenly city's street of gold was Monument Boulevard, lined with the bronze icons of Stewart, Lee, Jackson, and more. Organizers saved Jeff Davis until 1907, and the event demonstrated that enthusiasm had not waned over time. Around 200,000 people turned out to witness a parade of 12,000 veterans group members, then orations, and the dedication. Such events would occur at least until 1920. The Lost Cause. Almost immediately after the war, during it actually, Southern leaders began creating the mythology that would justify continued resistance, oppression of blacks, and the romanticizing of the Southern heroes. It turned into a virtual religion of its own. The Southern civil religion emerged in the experience and defeat in the Civil War and created a spiritual and psychological need for Southerners to reaffirm their identity, an identity which came to have outright religious dimensions. Each lost cause ritual and organization was tangible evidence that Southerners had made a religion of their history. These rituals include the grand multi-day meetings of United Confederate Veterans or United Daughters or Sons, 
of the Confederacy, complete with parades, orations, celebrity appearances, hundreds of thousands of attendees, and the dedication of countless monuments and statues. They certainly served a social purpose. The Confederate veteran was a living incarnation of the idea that Southerners tried to defend at the cultural level, even after Confederate defeat had made political success impossible. Every time a Confederate died, every time flowers were placed on graves on Southern Memorial Day, Southerners relived and confronted the death of the Confederacy. The religion of the lost cause was a cult of the dead, which dealt with essential religious concerns. This cult of the dead justified turning from the insistence upon maintaining slavery at all costs to playing the role of victims. Perhaps even more ironically, they continued to victimize the freed blacks among them while complaining of their own subjugation beneath Yankee tyrants. After the war, the South embraced a mythology of victimhood. An important feature was the assertion that the war had not been about slavery at all, but about states' rights. Before the war, this had not been so. The cessationists themselves were not so shy. In their various declarations, they announced they were leaving the Union to preserve slavery. Indeed, virtually every southern state secession declaration specified slavery as a central or substantial cause, and the issue had popped up frequently during the secession conventions as well. As we have seen, Southerners had argued from the Continental Congress forward repeatedly that they had no desire to maintain Union unless it upheld chattel slavery. When they mentioned states' rights, they did so in the context of maintaining their right to that species of property that was chattel slaves. Immediately after Appomattox, indeed even during the war, for international public relations purposes, their rhetoric changed. Suddenly, slavery had never been at issue at all. Southerners had fought only for liberty and state sovereignty, of course. Back in 1860-61, to 61, the issue seemed clear. Southerners talked then of slavery and, to a lesser extent, of racial adjustment and state rights. From the start, a large part of the Confederate elite pointed to slavery as the cause of armed conflict. Robert Hardy Smith, a member of the Provisional Congress, wrote in 1861 that the question of Negro slavery has been the apple of discord and that we have dissolved the late Union chiefly because of the Negro quarrel. Only a few contemporaries would have disagreed, even in 1861. In his famous cornerstone speech, given just after his inauguration as Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander H. Stevens not only asserted that slavery was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution, but he also claimed using biblical metaphor that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his, the Negro's, natural and moral condition, and that stone which was rejected by the first builders is become the chief stone of the corner. In this, he echoed Robert M.T. Hunter, who had stated on the floor of the United States Congress in 1859 that the Union was like an arch, 
and the very keystone of this arch consists of the black marble cap of African slavery. Knock that out and the mighty fabric, with all that it upholds, topples and tumbles to its fall. Literally scores of such comments appear throughout comments from Southern leadership and journalism, and they continued all throughout the war. As late as 1865, the Charleston Mercury admitted that the South started the war to preserve slavery. As soon as the war ended, however, slaves were freed. If such an argument were sustained, Southern leaders and the South in general would never recover. The rhetoric had to change to maintain the northern invaders as the bad guys. So the rhetoric as to the cause of the war changed almost literally overnight and almost to a man. Slavery hardly ever would come up as a cause again. States' rights and secession now took center stage. Nowhere is this radical flip-flop more prominent than in the public proclamations of the South's own vice president, Alexander Stevens, after the war. Slavery no longer supplied a cornerstone. Now the war had its origin in opposing principles, which, in their action, upon the conduct of men, produced the ultimate collision of arms. These conflicting principles lay in the organic structure of government of the states. The contest was between those who held it, the central government, to be strictly federal in its character and those who maintained that it was thoroughly national. Slavery, if anything, now is only incidental. Nevertheless, the reinvented Southern secession history immediately became the version of the truth perpetuated by the creators of the lost cause narrative. Jefferson Davis reduced his own post-decision dissonance by confessing that, although the South had not won, it should have. Davis and others who shared his views, excessively proud of the Confederacy and their roles in it, fell into the class proudly labeled unreconstructed. It was such individuals who established and ran the historical societies, veterans organizations, and cemetery associations. Their societies and journals excused Confederate errors and quarreled over minor points. Exposed to evidence of their senses, which unequivocally demonstrates a belief system to be wrong, people like Davis, J. William Jones, and Jubal A. Early tended to proselyte more vigorously for the belief system. The literature of the lost cause is full of examples. To such former Confederates, it was still not yet two o'clock on that July afternoon in 1863. The brigades are in position, and picket, waiting for Longstreet to give the word, and it's all in the balance. This time. Maybe this time. In creating this religion of the lost cause, as one historian has called it, Southern leaders laid the foundation for a civic faith in which their past sins, if any, had been resolved and erased. Their heroes were apothesized and all their former glory just lay on the horizon. To the defenders of the old order, the heroism of 
Southern white men and women had reached its peak in the Confederacy. Likewise, they concluded that blacks as slaves reached the height of their dignity as a race in the war. The key word Southern writers used for these blacks was loyal. But this loyalty was said routinely only to have been the product of contact with whites. The good example of white slave owners had provided blacks dignity by reason of discipline and habit, restraints on idleness. According to Georgian Rebecca Felton, the first woman senator in the U.S. and the last member of either House of Congress to have owned slaves. Without slavery, Felton argued vehemently, blacks were half-civilized gorillas driven by brutal lust and hell-bent on raping white women. Throughout the 19th century, Southerners praised and even romanticized the old-time Negroes produced by the plantation. Southern religious leaders and laymen were perhaps even more prone to this view than most people in Dixie. They sentimentally reminisced about the influence of the old uncles and mammies, freely granting that the chivalrous character of Southerners owed much to the spiritual example of these old slaves. While countless monuments of Confederate heroes were erected all across the South, the thought of memorializing the loyalty of these old-time Negroes was far too much. Upon one such proposal, daughter of the Confederacy, W. Charlton Adams, objected that the South was already black with their living presence. Loyal slaves had already received their reward, and the money for such a monument would be better spent on a home for Confederate women. Would not such a monument be an affront, after all, when there is not a state in the South not in mourning for some beautiful woman whose life has been strangled out by some black fiend? Amidst the type of localized events Richmond began in 1875, a more centralized effort developed with the United Confederate Veterans Group in 1889. Official business was small at first, as representatives from a meager 19 Confederate camps showed up, but the 1890 festivities were attended by 4,000 visitors and the parade viewed by upwards of 80,000. These impressive numbers swelled in a mere six years to a whopping 65,000 visitors and 150,000 viewers of the parade. In the same year, representation had grown from 19 to 850 camps. The ovations of former Confederate soldiers, therefore, must be seen a representative of a large swath of the public. Orators ranged from former officers to famous chaplains, such as Dabney's biographer, Benjamin Palmer. Their rhetoric all had one thing in common. Slavery was almost universally absent as a cause of the war. In fact, Lincoln's own politically motivated statements about saving the Union, even if it meant not freeing any slaves, was quoted on multiple occasions for support, as if it exonerated the South in some way. 
following a mold set by Stevens, slavery as the main reason or even a reason for secession and war was replaced by every appeal to constitutionalism, states' rights, and property rights imaginable. Far from finding any cause in slavery, these apologists sometimes even praised the institution for the blessing it had been for the enslaved blacks. Former Confederate mayor, later lawyer and politician John W. Daniels argued, Our race found the black man a wanderer in the wilderness and gave him a home. It found him naked and clothed him. It found him a savage, a cannibal, and a heathen and made him a Christian. It found him muttering gibberish and gave him a language. It found him empty-minded and filled him with instruction. Where extolling the virtues of southern slavery on behalf of blacks was not enough, some orators fell back on the argument that the slave trade had been imposed on the southern states against their will by tyrant Yankee slave traders. While there is no denying the complicity of the avaricious northern traders, the argument could hardly exonerate the South's voracious appetite for them. Thus, the standard argument became to ignore slavery as a cause altogether. General Edward C. Walthall, later a U.S. Senator, argued, We went to war to save the Constitution as we read it. Likewise, Senator James H. Berry, also former governor of Arkansas, stated, We fought for the Constitution as our fathers taught it to us. This was necessary because, as Presbyterian chaplain James H. McNeely stated, the North was using the Union to destroy their liberty under the Constitution, and thus the Southern states were degraded to a subordinate place in the Greater Sisterhood. Likewise, General Bradley Johnson proclaimed, Every lover of constitutional liberty all over the world begins to understand that the war was not a war waged by the South in defense of slavery, but to protect liberty won and bequeathed. Again, the war of the South was a war of self-defense. Not one man in a thousand in the Confederate Army had any property interest in slavery. Every man had a home and a mother. We will see later more precisely why Civil War soldiers themselves thought they fought. Others saw the Southern cause as preserving a culture distinct from the selfish greed and voracious materialism allegedly pervading in the North. At the unveiling of a monument to the Confederate dead at Fredericksburg, General Johnson gave his vision. In this sparsely settled country, the ties of blood kept their hold. Husband and wife, parent and child, all the ramified relations of kinship retain their binding force. Devotion to veracity and honor in man, chastity and fidelity in women were the ideals that formed character. On these grounds, the South waged war, not merely to preserve political institutions, but to perpetuate a social organization. The sanctity of marriage, the inviolability of the family, the faith in trust, honor, virtue, the protection of home. The irony was once again lost on the domineering class that had for so many decades defiled slave marriages and ripped apart their families. 
Thus, one analyst of these rhetoricians concluded that these orator apologists proclaimed that the war had been fought for practically everything but slavery, the rights of the individual, rights of the states, rights of geographical regions, rights of economic subgroups, rights of political minorities. These, said the speakers, had been the real issues of the war. Apparently, some old times there were indeed forgotten. Not all former Confederates joined the mythologizing, however. A few select ones displayed tremendous candor for the duration of their lives. John S. Mosby, for example, former Confederate colonel, had fought loyally for the South. Unlike many of his contemporaries, however, his loyalty extended to the truth after the fact as well. After one of the many reunion events of the Confederate veterans in 1907, Mosby wrote to a friend expressing his distaste with several aspects of the charade. First, reporting on the comments of a mutual friend who had apparently been carried away by the propaganda, Mosby exposed their utter short-sightedness and hypocrisy. I wrote you about my disgust at reading the reunion speeches. It has since been increased by reading Christian's report. I'm certainly glad I wasn't there. According to Christian, the Virginia people were the abolitionists and the northern people were pro-slavery. He says slavery was a patriarchal institution, so were polygamy and circumcision. Ask Hugh if he has been circumcised. Further, this same spirit led to a selective reporting of the history. Christian quotes what the old Virginians said against slavery, true. But why didn't he quote what the modern Virginians said in favor of it? Mason, Hunter, Wise, etc. Why didn't he state that a Virginia senator, Mason was the author of the Fugitive Slave Law, and why didn't he quote the Virginia Code, 1860, to make it a crime to speak against slavery or to teach a Negro to read the Lord's Prayer? Mosby then exemplified the ethic for which he argued pure honesty. He wrote very candidly about his beliefs and motivations at the time, even if they had changed over time. Now, while I think as badly of slavery as Horace Greenlee did, I am not ashamed that my family were slaveholders. It was our inheritance. Neither am I ashamed that my ancestors were pirates and cattle thieves. People must be judged by the standard of their own age. If it was right to own slaves as property, it was right to fight for it. Mosby then applied this same spirit of candor to the rest of the South and on its behalf, and that is our point here. He saw that the South had not gone to war to protect some abstraction of states' rights, but for a particular material and the very reason that, at the time, an appeal to the states' rights would happen to ensure to the South. He wrote, The South went to war on account of slavery. South Carolina went to war, as she said in her cessation proclamation, because slavery was not to be secure under Lincoln. South Carolina ought to know what was the cause for her seceding. 
13 years earlier, in 1894, Mosby had been even more direct in a letter to his former battalion surgeon, Aristus Monterio, former Confederate private turned radical preacher, then Confederate apologist, Robert C. Cave had just created a national stir with a dedication speech for a Soldiers and Sailors Monument in Richmond, in which he argued the South had been blameless. I believe that the South was in the right, and that her cause was just, and that her subjugation was an outrage on liberty. As for this just cause, it was not the desire to hold others in bondage, but the desire to maintain their own rights, which actuated the Southern people throughout the conflict. Four million former slaves would probably have raised an eyebrow at that comment. So did Mosby. I noticed that Cave says the charge that the South went to war for slavery is a slanderous accusation. I always understood that we went to war on account of the thing we quarreled with the North about. I never heard of any other cause of quarrel than slavery. The majority report, by far, however, was that the South did not secede over slavery but states' rights. This move parallels the type of pretense we've seen covering oppression and other phenomena. Officially non-discriminatory statutes made discriminatory via enforcement or interpretation, allegedly equal laws written to target blacks, etc. With an intense focus on states' rights and constitutionalism, a whole nation of racists could continue a systematic program of discriminatory power, all the while plausibly denying they targeted blacks in illegal ways or use subterfuges to keep them oppressed. The inner workings of motivations and private agreements would always remain at best unclear. What they did make abundantly clear, however, repeatedly, was the supremacy of the white race, and the whites had to live with blacks among them, the blacks would suffer subjection and or rejection, segregation, and disenfranchisement. Jim Crow Laws in the century between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Act, Americans continued or enacted a variety of laws designed to control the black race as well as others and segregate the races in general. The black codes immediately after the war differed only slightly from those for blacks and slaves before it. Redemption spelled the end of what limited respite and rights some black enjoyed during Reconstruction and returned them to oppression. The ascent of lost cause propaganda brought new waves of self-conscious white supremacy and with it concerted efforts at a segregation of the races every bit as rigid as the slave laws had been harsh. Some of the most tenacious of these laws against interracial marriage the Supreme Court case of Loving v. Virginia invalidated only in 1967. Many attendant features and supportive attitudes remain much longer and still do in some individuals and groups even today. Entertainer Thomas Rice created a blackface character named Jim Crow in 1832. 
The widely known satire and racial parody at some point struck as some sort of social meme, and within a few years, the name Jim Crow became a derogatory epithet for blacks. The new segregation initiatives, beginning in the 1890s, assumed the appellative for its goal of regulating Jim Crow to separate facilities, considering the enormity of the racial offenses from insults to lynchings perpetuated under these laws, at least one recent writer has suggested the more relevant moniker, the age of neo-slavery. Strict segregation had not always fully been the case in the South, though oppression had. During slavery, whites exploited blacks, but nevertheless constantly worked and lived in proximity to them, and social mingling occurred regularly in most cities, although blacks were usually not allowed in certain places, such as hotels. Even radical abolitionists and black journalists keen to find infractions while traveling in the South in the 1880s reported in surprise that they not only found none, but saw blacks and whites together more comfortably than in the North. There may have been certainly political motivations for the reporting of such circumstances to the exclusion of others. Abuses and anti-black violence were without question widespread. But these observations cannot be ignored. Jim Crow grew into something it originally was not. It took several years of the self-conscious construction and organized mobilization of a militarized white supremacy, often against the divided white business community willing to accommodate black political participation for the sake of stability to enable white redemption of the South. Once achieved, however, White leaders moved to impose a segregation by law more universal and more intense than before, especially in the Deep South states. States varied in the scope and degree of their segregationist visions, but a few commonalities appeared, segregated schools, the forbidding of interracial marriage, and a crusade to disenfranchise blacks. Various states, however, enacted segregations in a seemingly unlimited scope beyond these, Restaurants, alcohol sales, streetcars, railroads, health care and charities, prisons, circuses, housing, adoption, school textbooks, funerals, fishing, boating, bathing, telephone booths, public halls, operas, theaters, and more. Moreover, during the era, many states beyond the former Confederates and the lingering northern partners in crime joined the practice. Arizona, California, Utah, Montana, the Dakotas, virtually all of the West and Midwest adopted segregation in various areas, almost without exception in education and marriage. California extended its Jim Crow laws to cover the Chinese as well. The desire to exclude blacks from the vote was crucial, and its early expression is represented well by comments from Southern Presbyterian clergyman and commentator Robert L. Dabney. At the end of an 1876 essay on The Negro and the Common School, he gave his prescription for the most pressing political problem at the root of it. Says Dabney, Our straight road back to safety would be at once to repeal Negro suffrage. But our masters will not hear of that. 
What is called impartial suffrage is, however, permitted by their new constitution. We should at once avail ourselves of that permission, without attempting any discrimination on grounds of race, color, or previous condition of bondage, establish qualifications both of property and intelligence for the privilege of voting. This would exclude the great multitude of Negroes and also a great many white men. And this would, last be of itself no little gain, for many more white men have the privilege than use it for the good of the state. Again, the very misfortunes of the time gave us this advantage now for drawing back from the ultra-radicalism of our previous legislation that the mass of white men are now impressed with the dishonor and the mischiefs of Negro suffrage. The majority of those white voters having no property would even joyfully surrender their privilege, tarnished and worthless as it is, if thereby the Negro could be excluded. This constitutes our opportunity. Dabney would not live to see his home commonwealth of Virginia succeed in this goal in 1902, but it surely did come. And every other southern state did so either by statute, amendment, or a new constitution between 1890 and 1908. Some required poll taxes, which poor individuals, virtually all blacks, could not afford to pay. Others imposed literacy tests or educational requirements, which would by design exclude the vast majority of blacks. Others combined these features and more. Alabama took the prize. Its new constitution of 1901 has been said to have contained the most elaborate suffrage requirements that have ever been in force in the United States or indeed ever devised by the mind of man. Leaders spoke candidly of their motivations. Jackson Giles, president at the Alabama convention, asked, What is it that we want to do? He answered his own question, establish white supremacy in this state. It worked. Black voter registration dropped throughout the South by 90 to 100 percent, virtually eliminating their voices until the 1960s. Southern states, nevertheless, still demanded congressional representation calculated by including the full number of disenfranchised blacks in the population and received it, a dramatic increase over the mere three-fifths negotiated by their slave-trading forefathers. The Pinckneys, no doubt, would have been impressed. The gains in power by Southern Democrats in the legislatures, locally, statewide, and nationally, ensued that the federal government would largely be powerless against Jim Crow. Despite the 14th Amendment, granting equal protection and due process, and the 15th, promising the right to vote, the Supreme Court squashed the most important challenges to the racist oppressions. When a Louisianan named Homer Plessy successfully pressed a segregated railway car law to the highest court, it decided seven to one on the flimsiest of reasonings that as long as the segregated service was provided equal to that of whites, 
then it was acceptable to segregate them. Thus, the famous decision of Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, provided the precedent of separate but equal. In states that would leverage across the board in every area of life to impose Jim Crow segregation. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. would provide a similarly flimsy justification for the voting restrictions in Giles v. Harris, 1903. These precedents would be used to justify and maintain racist evils for over half a decade. Well did Justice John Marshall Harland, the sole dissenting voice in Plessy, warn that the judgment this day rendered will in time prove to be quite as pernicious as the decision made by this tribunal in the Dred Scott case. Convict Labor Slavery Stories of cruelty to slaves and free blacks during the slavery era are, by now, well-known and perhaps unfortunately even threadbare. Free blacks, in addition to the legal oppressions, face the reality of being falsely arrested or kidnapped and sold into slavery under false pretenses. It helps, for certain contexts, to recall the nature of this crime. The story of free black John Davis, for example, was typical of his day. He stepped off the segregated rail car to spend the night at a small junction on the way home from seasonal work to see his ailing wife. He was met in the middle of the street by a local shop owner who demanded to know, Nigger, have you got any money? It was a trap question. Answer no, and it would be tacit proof he was absentee without permission or vagrant or runaway. He could be arrested. Answer yes, however, and it was tacit proof he had stolen from someone or had left him exposed to robbery by a white with impunity. Once arrested, a free black was only a makeshift gavel away from a return to slavery. Sure enough, that would be John Davis's fate. Once a local plantation owner secured his coerced labor, Davis experienced the lash of a handful of hired overseers. One specifically fancied a three-inch wide leather strap, 18 inches long, tied to a handle. Actual records in John's case reveal systematic beatings in which these guards ordered laborers to lower their pants and lie on the ground while being whipped with the strap on the buttocks, back, and legs. Any who resisted were forcibly stretched across a log or stump and then worked over. An eyewitness recorded how one particularly ruthless overseer would hit over 100 licks, sometimes 50 or 75 times, never less than 30. No doctors or other potentially accountable agents would be around to witness. When these black victims tried to escape, the plantation owners turned the dogs on them. In one case, the owner not only brought back the terrorized slave, but arrested and re-enslaved every black along the way who had allegedly helped or harbored him. The neighboring plantation was no better. He held his slaves in a stockade surrounded by guard dogs and beat them regularly. Sure, you have all heard these types of things already. 
The unique part is that this was no longer 1833. It was 1903, and this was not slavery anymore. That had long since been abolished by law. This was a system that arose immediately after the war and continued long after. It was a new system which had come to be known as convict labor, except for a few differences in name and minor differences in technical legalities. The result was largely the same for the victims. Before the Civil War, white people comprised 99% of Alabama's prison population. Afterwards, this reality flipped almost entirely. Immediately after the Black Codes, blacks arrested under the vagrancy statutes and under laws packed courts and swelled prisons. When they could not afford to pay fines and fees, the courts bonded them out as indentured contract laborers to the highest bidder, often with priority given to former masters. With the rise of industrial slavery, which began in the South in the 1850s, large corporations took up major shares of these convict leases. By the 1880s and 90s, mining giants such as Tennessee Coal and Iron, TCI, and Sloss Furnaces dominated the market for leased prisoners, paying only around half the going rate of the lowest common laborer and with the revenues all going to the state, not the convicts. Throughout the 1880s, the counties of central Alabama, which had the highest percentages of blacks, did not lease out a single white prisoner. In 1890, TCI leased 1,051 prisoners from throughout the state. 894 were black. Prison populations across the South ballooned accordingly, reflecting the same disparities. The convict lease system has rightly been called slavery by another name. Where slavery failed, convict leasing served as an explicit form of new social control for blacks, with many of the same features of the previous form. The new industrial masters forced the leased convicts to extract as much as five tons of coal per day, six days a week, with a shovel. Brutal whippings continued. Some companies employed torturous methods, such as sweatbox solitary confinement, Mortality rates climbed and armed bosses guarded the exit to prevent escapees. As early as 1866, former slaves relearned their place in society as they served in the streets or fields on convict chain gangs, while prominent whites stood by ready to put an exclamation point on it, as one journalist in Selma did. That's the beauty of freedom! That's what free niggers come to. Most of the other southern states enjoying the practice with similar results, even if not quite as extreme as Alabama's. Convicts could be leased to mines, quarries, railroads, factories, timber companies, agricultural labor, and more often in the early years with the perverse psychological punishment of rebuilding the infrastructure of a society that had been destroyed in a war allegedly to set them free, even if not as harsh as the morbidity of Alabama, conditions were generally terrible in every venue nonetheless. Georgia mines routinely whipped convicts for failing to reach quotas, 
a Louisianan conceded that it would be more humane to impose the death sentence upon anyone sentenced to a term with the lessee in excess of six years because the average convict lived no longer than that. The official practice lasted until the 1900s in some states as late as 1923 in Florida and 1928 in Alabama. Just as slavery had ended, yet continued under new names with only a few modifications, so did convict leasing. Once legally terminated, the practices nevertheless morphed only slightly and continued under new guises. Despite its official end in Georgia in 1908, the selling of mostly black prisoners into forced labor only escalated. By 1930, over 8,000, nearly all blacks, served on chain gangs in 116 counties. Hundreds of thousands more were immobilized in free labor conditions, which, were they to try to leave, left them vulnerable to the threat of arrest in the chain gang. In Alabama, too, similar numbers continued, even as most states were ending or had ended the official system. Nevertheless, nearly every sheriff and town marshal in southern Alabama made his primary living in some variation of this trade of human labor. In Macon, Georgia, likewise, when farmers raised a plea for more cotton pickers in 1932, Police just happened to crack down on vagrancy and arrested 60 black men, then promptly handed them over to a local plantation owner. This same type of thing occurred in other places. Helena, Arkansas, for example. With the incentives at stake, you can understand why. Two Mississippi sheriffs, for example, personally reported in 1929, profiting between $20,000 and $30,000, roughly $285,000 to $430,000 today, each an extra income from this practice. While a variety of such instances occurred routinely up until the 1940s, appeals to the federal government largely fell on brass ears. So much had occurred with local winks and nods, covered by so many implicated local officials not enough records could be produced to instigate the feds to action. In the few cases successfully prosecuted, enforcement was so slight as to affect encourage rather than discourage the system. When Charles Bledsoe pleaded guilty in 1941 to holding a black man in servile peonage against his will, he received only a menial fine of $100 about 1750 today and six months probation. What finally seems to have cracked the system was a more universal form of servitude, a military draft. Five days after Pearl Harbor, U.S. Attorney General Francis Biddle manifested the Roosevelt administration's acknowledgement that it would need to draft blacks as well as whites for the war effort. 
Perhaps it should, therefore, remove the stigma against blacks before our enemies could publicize that against us and before we could feign the pretense of asking those we left unprotected in quasi-slavery to fight for us in the cause of global freedom and liberty. The expression came in the form of a circular letter acknowledging the long history of the unwritten federal law enforcement policy to ignore most reports of involuntary servitude. Circular number 3591, Re-Involuntary Servitude, Slavery, and Peonage, directed all federal prosecutors to inform all local law enforcement that federal officials would require them to crack down on cases potentially involving involuntary servitude and slavery, particularly in states that maintain criminal statutes to enforce labor contracts. The crackdown came but only from an administration motivated by the need to counteract enemy propaganda that broadcasted to the colored race throughout the world, saying the democracies are insincere. It took the wake-up call of World War II to bring some level of sanctification. Not only did enforcement step up, Americans rewrote federal policy in 1948, and 1951 to clarify and strengthen laws against such disgraces. These realities, along with the shared experiences of blacks and whites during the war, helped set the stage for Brown v. Board of Education desegregating schools in 1954. But even this was still a decade out from the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Nor did everyone just accept the decision when handed down. A famous photograph from a protest of school desegregation in Little Rock, Arkansas, in 1959 shows scores of whites holding signs that say, Race mixing is communism and that race mixing is the march of the Antichrist. Conclusion Without question, the end of chattel slavery in the southern states was a monumental event. But rather than a wide door open to liberty and equality for blacks, it offered little more than a slight crack through which only the first rays of light could reveal the outline of numerous obstacles, chains, enemies, and threats ahead. No sooner were slaves proclaimed free and equal, given the right to protection of law and provided the right to vote, all by constitutional amendment, did the very forces who had previously enslaved them regain power and effect a whole series of evasions, devices, and false witnesses to return those free blacks back to a variety of oppressions, segregations, prisons, and forms of slavery under different names. The forces behind the new normal adapted and enforced it relentlessly, showing a constant willingness to engage in every moral violation from lies and theft to kidnapping, violence, murder, and even mass murder, not much different really than the slave merchants of bygone centuries who pioneered and conducted the transatlantic slave trade. Mass incarceration and torture reappeared along the way too. 
This history following the emancipation of slaves in America reveals that the unbelievably wicked system of slavery had deep roots in an even wickeder problem of racism. In the majority opinion of Plessy, Justice Brown cited as precedent two cases from northern slave courts. Again, note the northern contribution. One of these, Roberts v. City of Boston, 1849, addressed and dismissed the social phenomenon of racism. This prejudice, if it exists, is not created by law and probably cannot be changed by law. Indeed, it seems that a large part of the history of abolitionism and civil rights in America consists of trying to use the law to solve an issue not fully solvable by law, but which is an issue of changing hearts and minds. Nevertheless, to the extent that law can by compulsion curtail certain outward injustices, emancipation has involved a long history of uphill fights for the next piece of legislation or the next court decision for more freedom and equal protection. The history of Reconstruction, Redemption, Jim Crow, etc., illustrate not only the continuation of a civil war of racial hostility and control, but also that the battles along the way involve many demoralizing losses and setbacks and long seasons of triumph for corruption and evil. Indeed, we have not even begun to understand the depth and prevalence of many of the more important specific battles that occurred all throughout the history of the oppression of the black members of our race. In the next chapter, we will examine some of the tragedies most relevant to our larger goal. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.